you're going to have a great morning this morning. You've got uh, three freshmen of the rising stars in the conservative movement. I look forward to sharing the panel uh, discussion with them this morning. Let me introduce them. Uh, Congressman Tom Emmer represents Minnesota's 6th Congressional District. He serves on the House Financial Services Committee. Uh, Tom graduated from the William Mitchell College of Law in 2004. He was elected to the Minnesota House of Representatives and re-elected in 2006 and 2008. You've heard he's already had a uh, strong bipartisan piece of legislation come through from all the way to the House floor. Pretty remarkable for a freshman. It's a great job, Tom. Look forward to sharing this morning with you. Congressman French Hill represents Arkansas 2nd Congressional District, and he's a ninth-generation Arkansan. Now, I'd rather be a ninth-generation Texan than Arkansan. With <laughs> <laughs> that said, uh, that said, actually, I was, uh, we came to Texas before it was actually Texas, so I'm not sure what you'd call us, because uh, Texas was a Spanish territory at the time. Uh, he served, uh, spent two decades as a commercial banker and investment manager. He also served as a senior official for President George H.W. Bush's administration. And in the House, he sits on the House Financial Services Committee, and he and I share a dear friend that also worked in the 41's uh, administration, a guy named Fred McClure, who's one of my classmates from Texas A&M. So there you go. <laughs> Congressman Mike Bishop represents uh, Michigan's 8th Congressional District. He serves on the Judiciary Committee and the Education Workforce Committee. He's also a member of the House Steering Committee. Before coming to Congress, he served as station in the Michigan State Legislature, taught law, and served as a private attorney for families, small businesses, and local governments. And before we uh, before we begin our uh, panel discussion, I want to talk a little bit about what the Republican Study Committee has been up to the last past few months and what you can expect from us over the, the uh, remainder of 2016. Uh, we have always served a very important function in the House as the largest caucus, actually in the entire Congress. We're the largest caucus in Congress. Today we have 176 members. And uh, we, we do several things. We provide sort of the conservative conscience uh, of, of the movement inside the House of Representatives. We also provide the tool sets that allow people to, uh, to, to help them analyze legislation. Our legislative bulletins that we put out with every piece of legislation, every suspension bill, you name it, uh, we put it out. And it's the, sort of the go-to guide for members of Congress to look at in terms of how uh, every piece of legislation uh, fits with our conservative ideals. We uh, have the strongest network of conservatives in the House, and we also are the idea factory. We're the folks that come up with bold ideas. I'll talk about one of them in a minute. It didn't go very far, but at least it was something to think about, which uh, caused uh, uh, some, uh, people to be stimulated in the ways to think about different things. Um, last year, when I became chair, we laid out a bold conservative agenda that was uh, focused on the following five principles. One, we wanted to expand economic opportunity through more jobs and better paychecks. Second, we wanted to fix Washington's fiscal mess. Third, we wanted to rebuild American national security. Fourth, we wanted to protect American values. And fifth, we wanted to restrict the federal government to its constitutionally limited role. And we crafted every policy proposal we crafted fit with those five principles. The first thing that we rolled out last year was a blueprint for a balanced budget. And the, the RSC budgets have always been the most aspirationally uh, conservatively aspirational budgets in the House. And last year's was no exception. If you look at the things that are in RC budgets, they typically move, migrate into House budgets over time. Uh, for instance, if I go back to my, fresh, my first freshman year, that the RSC budget we did that year for 
suppose that the federal budget be balanced in 10 years or less. The House budget at that time was going to balance in about 30. And so and when we moved to 2012, my second year of my freshman term, what did we have on the floor of the House? The House budget had a 10-year balance. And we've always had provisions, and that's just one great example, we've, all, we've always had provisions in RSC budgets that migrated in the House budgets. Again, continuing to push the House budgets in a conservative uh, direction, the House overall in, in a conservative direction. Last year's budget was our most conservative budget ever. ever. It balanced in six years. It cut Washington spending by $7.1 trillion over 10 years. It also uh, strengthened our national defense and it repealed Obamacare through reconciliation. That ultimately became part of the House budget last year and we actually had that reconciliation vote. Unfortunately, the President uh, uh, chose to hurt the American people by, uh, by uh, uh, vetoing our uh, reconciliation. Uh, it's, uh, as I said before, these have always uh, impacted the House budgets over time. We also rolled out the American Health Care Reform Act. It is our vision for replacement for Obamacare. We have more co-sponsors on this bill than any other piece of health care reform legislation in the House. It is a patient-centered solution that re relies on free market principles. It increases competition of choice, and it lowers premiums and improves access. That's what we're all about. I mean, when, when you look at health care reform, lower premiums and improve access. And this is what we're what it does. If you look at Obamacare, it's done exactly the opposite. <clears throat> Last year, as we were approaching uh, August, September, it appeared that, <coughs> I don't mean to need disrespect, but it appeared that our House leadership was not doing anything about an upcoming debt ceiling vote. And we had, the House had done a great job, the appropriations had done a great job in terms of getting appropriations bills out of the Appropriations Committee and on the House floor. We actually got all 12 marked up in appropriations, got six on the House floor. Over 200 great policy writers came out of the RSC and went into those appropriations bills. We were so successful last year, we got a lot of them in base tax. But then, you know, but you saw what happened in the Senate, they couldn't even get the defense approach bill passed. So we started getting together to think about how do we deal with appropriations and how do we deal with the debt ceiling. We came up with something called the Terms of Credit Act. It was based on uh, three uh, key uh, considerations. One is budget, and that was to stick to the savings in a previously held House and passed Senate budget. You know, if you remember the House and Senate ultimately did pass the budget last year. The second provision was work. If Congress misses its spending deadlines, it must keep it working until the problem solved in August. The recess would go away, weekends would go away, we'd keep moving forward. And then the growth part of our plan was to put in a regulatory freeze so that any pending regulation that had not gone into effect would be deferred, the implementation would be deferred to July of 2017, and also that all the regulators would have to put their pins down until July of 2017. <laughs> Think about what that would have done. Think about how American businesses today, and the ones you represent in this audience, could have just taken a sigh of relief and said, okay, we, we at least have some window that we can reinvest in our businesses and our people and our physical property physical plan, our intellectual property, to move forward. Think about what that would have done for us. We uh, we didn't have much runway for this, unfortunately, because when <coughs> leadership tried a couple of other things, and when they finally said, oh, those aren't going to work, they turned to us and said, why don't you do this? This is an idea that would have taken a little more runway to get off the ground, but it is something that's still out there and something we're looking at. This year, we're continuing to build on the agenda that we and the performance that we had last year. 
Uh, and it's, we think it's more important than ever, given what's coming out of the administration and also the presidential race, to have that positive vision. And also to fit well with what Speaker Ryan is doing in his bold agenda project, uh, because since we're two-thirds of the Republican uh, conference in the House, it gives us the opportunity to have a unique input into his agenda program. We rolled out our second uh, blueprint for a balanced budget. It was 2.0. It was more aggressive in terms of cutting the deficit. Uh, the top line number was $974 billion discretionary spending compared to uh, a and 40 to a tree and 70, depending on where the, uh, we get a budget for it, it'll come out. It balances in eight years. It saves taxpayers $8.6 trillion. It still prioritizes defense. It promotes pro-growth tax reforms and incentivizes growth. And it uh, takes an aggressive uh, position in terms of dealing with welfare welfare reformer, as we call it, economic empowerment. <clears throat> Later on this year, we will roll out the American Healthcare Reform Act 2.0. We've got a great task force that's working on that. It will take the work that we did last year. Again, remember, we've got more <coughs> co-sponsors on our bill than anybody else. And it will, will actually begin. We've got a lot of input from the healthcare space and the insurance space and the uh, pharmaceutical space. We'll be able to incorporate those provisions moving forward. One of the things I'm proudest about is an initiative that's been led by Andy Barr and by Todd Young, and that's our economic empowerment initiative. This is something we at RSC started thinking about several months ago, but it fits well with what uh, Paul Ryan would like to do in terms of welfare reform and economic empowerment more overall. We, we basically just said, okay, the war on poverty has, has not worked, and we've spent 16 plus trillion dollars on this. Let's start with a blank sheet of paper. What's the best social program that you can create? What's the best safety net? It's a job. What is it we can do to expand jobs? What is it we can do to keep families together, to encourage family formation, not to break families apart? So if you think about all the things that our current welfare system does, it, it, it destroys dignity, and it creates despondency and dependency. And so what we're trying to do is to get rid of dependency and despondency and create dignity and the virtuous cycle of having a job and a strong family behind you. Uh, so we are, we had a soft rollout of that over the last few days. Wait, you'll see us uh, give it, present it to Paul Ryan and the Economic Empowerment Initiative that we have in the House overall. And the appropriations process, as I said uh, earlier, we had 200 plus amendments into the uh, appropriations process last year. I think we are going to have an appropriations process this year. I mean, based on what I'm saying out of the Senate, we, we'll see, but it looks like we will. Uh, we, have, we, have, we have not counted all the RSC uh, policy writers that have been, inserted, have been sent over to the Appropriations Committee. We'll have that number for you a little bit later on, but we're going to be positive, uh, have a positive work that. Um, we are going to be, so we'll continue to be active on appropriations. We are anticipating some pushback from the Senate and also from the President on what we've tried to do. Uh, of the 200 plus policy writers we had in last year's appropriations process, we had about a little over a dozen that made it into the omnibus. So that was disappointing from our standpoint. But you know, we all know that when you put yourself in a position, when the House puts itself in a position, uh, to not be able to get to deliver 218 votes on an appropriate our version of an appropriations bill, and then it basically cedes to the other side to the Democrats. Uh, the control of what's ultimately in the spending bill, and that's what happened last year. That said, we did keep some <coughs> great policy writers in there. Uh, with that, I'd like to invite Tom and Mike and French to come up with me, and we'll start our roundtable discussion.
Uh, 
and she was one of the choir members. Thank you, friends. So the district is incredibly diverse. Uh, it, it is about 30 to 35 miles north of the uh, Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and it starts on the Wisconsin border, and literally, if you look up the term redistricting in the dictionary, I think you'll find a picture of this district, because it wraps all the way around the Twin Cities from the east to the uh, west, and it's, it's a very unique district because while Minnesota uh, it ranks as high as number four on some lists for financial the financial services industry in the country, most people would think of Chicago right away, but it's uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. I have 60,000 people, uh, roughly, that are employed in the financial services industry in the district. The other thing that's interesting about the district is if you work at Medtronic, you probably live in the district. If you work at Boston Scientific, you probably live in our district. We are just that ex-urban area, just beyond the inner ring suburbs. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is the ground, more than 50% of it is still in agricultural production. So you've got everything in this district. And uh, it's been interesting since I came here. I would agree with French. Uh, it's an honor to be on the Financial Services Committee. To me, that's the plumbing of our free market economy that we're dealing with. Uh, the thing that makes this country unique, more unique than anywhere else in the world, is the ability to get capital, to uh, form capital for that next great idea. So for me, coming here is about making us competitive again, because it's all about the American dream. If you play by the rules, if you work hard, and if you are innovative, you too can be whoever you want to be, but we're killing it. In fact, I would say, uh, to use this example, our financial system in this country, which used to be amongst the most free and accessible, yeah, we had our problems, but the money flowed. Guess what? We have done to the financial uh, the services industry across this country what we're now apparently trying to do to the Internet. Uh, more regulation, more government uh, uh, weight on top of the ability for people to create things. So I, I had this great opportunity with the Financial Stability Oversight Council. Uh, that bill, we're going to keep pushing those types of reforms, Bill. But I'll give you an example uh, of something else that we're working on. I think someday uh, we are going to have to completely gut the tax system in this country. We have to go back to the drawing board in order for us to be competitive, not just here at home, but all around the globe. We're going to have to go to a flat tax or a fair tax or something completely different. And I did this because I'm still so happy, as you can tell. My wife always says, Tom, you've got to smile. Everybody's going, to think, everybody's going to think you're angry. Well, there's reason to be when you just got through tax day, right? 75,000 pages of what? So uh, let's just talk about you've you got to completely bail on the system and redo it. In the meantime, we've got to start working on the things that we can. So i got a new bill that in Washington speak, I won't give you the long thing, it's called the Create Jobs Act. You know, this country has the highest corporate tax rate of any uh, uh, developed country in the world at 39%. Just think about how many jobs we are losing, how many companies, and since 2012 we've lost 22 companies uh, to go overseas. Take Minnesota, one of our great success stories that was started in a garage, Medtronic is now an Irish company after its deal with Covidian. This has to change and it has to change soon. So. The idea that we've got is you take the average of the 34 countries that are members of the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the free market countries, pro-Western uh, countries, you take their average and you reduce that by five percentage points, which would put us at about 
And then you reevaluate that every five years so that you stay competitive, so that we can start to reverse that flow and bring it back home and have these things uh, work right here in the United States. That's a priority. Minnesota, lastly, because this is the guy you came to hear from, Bishop, not me. <laughs> Uh, the, he's the best looking one. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. <laughs> I, Minnesota is going to be very unique. We've got, uh, I, I would say that even though everybody thinks we're schizophrenic and maybe we are politically, uh, we are going to have some of the most hotly contested congressional races in the country this year. And it's going to affect people like me and Eric Paulson because of it. Uh, John Klein is retired. They are going to put $15 million plus into that seat. Nancy Pelosi just uh, made a $2.5 million buy about three weeks ago, and that's the first one. Uh, the problem with this is that that is movable, right? So they can see where they're at come September, and they can start moving that money around. And this, t this uh, media market not only is uh, Tom Emmer, Eric Paulson, John Klein's seat, couple of Democrats, but it also actually is the southern part of Sean Duffy's district across the Wisconsin border. So it, it, we've got Stuart Mills up in the north, which will be very competitive again with uh, with Rick Nolan. Okay. And all I'll say, I'll finish it with this because uh, I'm sure you're going to hear about Michigan where Mike's got some interesting stories bet, about their political situation. I was telling our table, the anger out there is more than just palpable. I mean, you don't have to kind of feel the audience to get an idea of where the anger is when you see crossed arms and heads shaking like this. <laughs> I mean, the district that I'm in, Ted Cruz won it just barely on our caucus night. Uh, Rubio was right behind him, and Trump was right behind Rubio. So the other thing is, we have a, uh, an electorate that they really don't know what they want. They're very angry, uh, and they're trying to figure it out. And, we need to be really good at the retail ground game this year to make sure that we don't have any mistakes and any surprises. Thank you again for having us here. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Mike, uh, tell us about your hair. What's going on? You have the best hair in this group, that's for sure. For the most part, I still have my hair, but I'm not saying it's lasting long around here. Um, this has been a very interesting year for me. I want to thank you for the opportunity to serve on the study committee um, to uh, to be a part of a of a group of freshmen. I'm so uh, grateful to serve with uh, Tom and French and a group of great uh, freshman leaders uh, who have really have come into Congress with a sense of responsibility and, and uh, a sense of urgency, which I think is really important right now. Uh, because, as Tom said, I do believe that our constituents as a whole uh, have really reached the end of the road. And uh, I know that you talk to the same folks that I talk to, so you can understand where I'm coming from. But uh, we really have got to do something to restore the faith and confidence in the American people. And the way we do that is to move this, this ship forward and get this government back on track. Uh, and we desperately need to do that. One of the things we can do is, is focus on our budget and make sure that uh, we get these appropriation bills done, that we have an open and honest debate about issues. Talk about priorities of government. It's so important that we do that. The American people are waiting for Republicans to show what they stand for. And until we do that, we can't expect them to support us and vote for us. So that I believe that this budget is one of the most important things that we can do right now, the appropriations bills, to do it in an in 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 open and transparent way, to have open debate, to talk about the priorities of government, and I look forward to doing that. I just want to, you know, for me it's important to let you know where I came from because it really is why I, I believe the things that I do today. I was brought up in a family. My father served in the state legislature when I grew up. Uh, 
when I grew up, everybody in my community was a Republican. Um, my dog was a Republican. It, it was just the way it was. And the reason for that was because my parents always told me that uh, you had to connect common sense with public policy. And that's why I was Republican. Uh, to me, it made sense. Public policy should uh, be a reflection of what society deems as just and right. And uh, so I've always looked at public policy that way. I had the opportunity to serve the state government at a time when our, our state was spiraling downward, desperately spiraling downward. Michigan, you just might as well have written it off in about 2008. And that was about that time that I rose to Senate Majority Leader. <coughs> Therefore, I was number one target. And I can tell you back then, I was you could have put our caucus in a phone booth. We, the number of Republicans in the state of Michigan had, had contracted. And our governor at the time believed in her heart that she could solve this financial crisis by spending your way out of it. And it failed miserably. And we had a two-member majority in the Michigan Senate when I was there, a Senate majority leader. We were the only majority in the entire state. And our majority consisted of 1,200 extra votes. Our two of our members won by 1,200 extra votes. That's how slim it was. But we stood firm, and we stood on a principle, and that is that uh, government should should focus on core principles. And at a time, especially in uh, economic um, difficult situations, we were in a full-on depression at the time in Michigan. We were losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. This is really what defined me, because our caucus stood together. We, we stood together for um, a, a, a government that represented core values, and uh, we were able to beat the governor at the time and really passed budgets that did not include tax increases, that uh, showed that you could reform and cut spending, and it wouldn't, the sun would still rise the next day. And lo and behold, in 2010, when, uh, when the next election hit, a Republican wave hit. And that wave completely changed the, 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 um, the core government so that we had more Republicans elected than any other time since 1948. And I would argue since 2010, Michigan has made one of the most dramatic comebacks in the history of states. From 2008 to 2009, we went from number 11 in per capita income to number 41. That's how fast the die took. Since 2010, since the new uh, governor has taken over with the new Republican majority, it's been a whole different story. I believe that kind of historical uh, transformation can happen at the federal level. That's why I ran uh, for, for Congress. I want to be a part of that revolution uh, with, with my colleagues to turn this country around, to do like we did in Michigan, to go from here to straight up um, to, to a place where we belong. And I'm, I'm grateful to, to serve in the study committee because I believe that's really the very essence of where this all will start. Okay, so thank, thank you. Thank you.